Anything you're worried about or if you got a contract, go straight to the special conditions. This is going to be, this is the area, the gray area where they're going to try bend reality. G'day and welcome to the Making It With Miles podcast. We're back for another episode of The Shed. On this podcast, we discuss all things from building, construction, renovations, uh, the real estate industry through the lens of a building inspector. And we do a little bit of personal development every now and then. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, share, follow all those good things. Uh, that would be much appreciated. On this episode, we will be discussing all things to do with major building contracts. I'm going to be talking about when a contract is required, when building insurance is required, when you need to engage a builder. We're going to talk about the obligations that come under the contract. Um, we're going to go through the contract step by step and pull out all the bits and pieces that I see as importance and something that you really need to understand and know just to help give a bit more detail um, as to what you're actually signing up for. Uh, and then we'll also go, go through a, a, a completed contract and we'll go through the details and see how it's broken up, what's included in the contract, all the appendixes and all those types of things. Um, so you can, you can better understand what you're up for, um, things to be aware of and um, just just some tips and tricks to just get a better understanding. So what we'll do, we'll get straight into it. Right, so first things first, when do you need a major building contract? Now, this is going to be for any job over $10,000, which in this era is pretty, practically every job that there possibly is. So if you're engaging a single contractor to do one specific task, say it's tiling, and it's over $10,000, there's no major domestic contract needed. Um, but if you've got a project happening, say it's a little renovation or an extension or, or even an alteration, say a bathroom renovation, and there's multiple trades and it's over $10,000, you're going to need a major domestic building contract put in place and executed by a registered building practitioner. Okay, it doesn't happen all the time. I can assure you that, but this is what is required and what is recommended um, to, to be proceeded with. Now, that being said, there's also domestic builders insurance. So domestic builders warranty insurance, uh, that's the big pool of money that everyone from Porter Davis is sucking up at the moment. Now, that needs to be implemented for any job that is over $16,000. So the builders warranty insurance can sort of cover that, that cover those costs if the builder goes insolvent dies or just just goes missing okay now we're not going to go into too much detail with the dbi insurance anything like that we're just going to talk about the contracts at the moment now one thing that i highly recommend uh you be aware of is that the contract that you're getting you're signing up to it's just a standard industry contract so a, a hia stamped or a uh, maybe it's a master builder stamped contract it's not some piece of paper written up on a word document from the builder um, that states X, Y, and Z. Okay, it's going to be very clear with all the terms of what you need to um, be signing up for. Now, what we're going to do here, we're going to go through an actual contract. This one here is a master builder's uh, contract. It's a home improvement contract. So you've got like new home construction, home improvement. Home improvement are things like, well, this job in particular was a complete renovation and extension of a home. Um, so it's pretty detailed as much as a new home is as well. So we'll go through all this, um, all the obligations that you come across during that process. Just talk about them, flush them out, just so you're made aware of them. Okay, so this is the front page of what you would get if you did a home improvement contract. Uh, it's a master builders one, it's like an e-contract. These are fucking awesome. They're templated, they're very easy to fill out um, and they just make the process so much better. They're all up to date with the standards. 
And um, yeah, it's a straightforward process. Now, the first thing that always comes off in most contracts is the cooling off period, okay? So in this situation, you have five business days to cool off if for any re- for whatever reason you want. Um, and that's made clear at the start of the contract. Now, something to consider about these contracts is that um, they're all based on an Australian standard, okay? So they all are backward engineered and built around a standard. So most of these contracts are written in a way where it's very similar and you can't really get away with things. Um, there are a couple of areas within the contract that you can um, or can be modified or, or manipulated in a way to get builders around issues. Um, which we'll go through um, further through the um, contract. So as always, we've got our definitions um, and everything related to the appropriate wording and what that looks like within the contract, which is very consistent with most contracts. Um, The next one we've got here is with regards to the builder not engaging the building surveyor. Now, something that's very common that I come across uh, with regards to these clients is that uh, as a client, it's very difficult to understand what you need to do as the role of a client when you're doing a building and construction project. You make the assumption that you just call a builder and you say, I want this extension done and all the work's done for you and it's easy. Now, there are a lot of steps to be taken throughout this process. There's drawing documentation, there's planning permits, there's a whole lot of things that need to be undertaken. One in particular is the building surveyor. The building surveyor is the person that collects all the documentation, puts the building permit together and issues a building permit to proceed with the construction works. They come throughout the job progressively um, at specific stages and they sign off on the job to say, yep, the job is right, it's hunky-dory, here's your final certificate, they can move into the house, no dramas at all. Now, something that's very common is that it's difficult for clients to find building surveyors. They don't know who to engage, they don't know what's going on. So, Most builders would steer them in the right direction, but they can't engage that building surveyor directly for the client because it's a conflict of interest. So you'll find a lot of builders be like, all right, I recommend you use this building surveyor, probably because they have a good relationship with them and they know that they get the work, you know, the job done quicker than most. And then it's up to the client to go out and do the legwork. What's going to happen in that process though is the client is going to be hit with all these unknowns all this documentation they have to get, all these things they have no idea about and what's most likely going to happen in that process is the builder will come in and say, right, I'll help you get through these steps. We'll get all the plans and permits together in place, do most of the legwork for the client and help communicate what the actual construction project's going to be and then go back to the building surveyor with all that relevant documentation. Very, very common. But be mindful, technically, the builder cannot engage the building surveyor on behalf of the client. Now, we'll touch on this. The domestic builder's insurance uh, is a cost that goes to the client, okay? And it has to be included in the contract value. So, for example, if you're a Category C uh, builder and your building insurance is like, it's a high-risk building insurance, it might be for a new home or whatever. It's Say it's a $400,000 job, you might be up for like, probably three and a half grand these days just for that builder's warranty insurance, okay? And that goes on top of the contract sum. So be mindful, it needs to be included in that contract sum, um, excluding any builder's margin. Okay, so a very important one that does not happen often uh, with builders is the commencement notice. Now, each job has a number of days that it needs to be completed within. That is contractually written um, towards the back end, which we'll go through later. 
But what needs to happen is there needs to be a commencement date. It's not as soon as the contract's signed, that's when the job starts. It's usually once the building permit is put in place and commencement has occurred on site. But this needs to be notified to the client. So once the builder's been on site for, say, a week, they need to send an, a, a letter or an email or some sort of correspondence to the client stating, we started on this day, this is the number of days to complete the project, this is now the completion date. So they will work back on that and go, right, this is our completion date, this was our start date, that's it, we're moving forward. So what that means is any extensions of time or any delays put onto the job, that finalized date, the completion date, is what's gonna be pushed backwards, okay, from that date. So everyone's in agreement. started the job, this is when we started, this is when it's gonna be completed. What can happen if this doesn't occur, uh, a lot of people can go, they, can, they think the completion date is gonna be, you know, months away, but it's actually in reality further along the track because the client feels thinking, oh, once I sign this, you know, we can, we can crack on, but that is not the case, unfortunately. All right, so this section of the contract is, uh, we discuss all things prime costs and provisional sums. This just explains some basic do's and don'ts and briefly explains what they are. So very basic, a prime cost is a, an item that does not include any labor that is flexible on the job. Now, what I mean by that is you can have a prime cost item of uh, door furniture or door hardware. You might have $1,000 in there for the job. Now, all that is, is that that's a pool of money that is going to go towards only door furniture. Now, if the client spends more than $1,000, they get charged the extra $500 plus builder's margin on top of that. If the client spends less than the $1,000 and they get their door furniture for free or $500, that sum is taken, is deducted from the contract value, okay? That's how that process works. Now, the other one is a provisional sum. So a provisional sum is similar, but it includes a labor component. Now, that labor component might potentially be something along the lines of drainage, okay? So you have a pr provisional sum. So we have a pool of money in the contract that we have allowed for, $5,000, to do... Aggie drains around the house to help with drainage. Now, the reason why it's a provisional sum is because it might be an unknown at the time. There might be drainage already there. We don't know if it's workable, if it's working already, don't know if it needs to be replaced, um, or there's nothing there at all. We just don't know. So what we've done and we've agreed with the client is that we'll put a sum in that can pay for something. It's not, it may not be all of it, it may be it's, it's a flexible number, but it's a it's a value already in there. So same again, if you go over that value and it costs $10,000 to the Aggie drains, well, then what that's going to do is going to add on top of the contract value plus margin. The builder needs to show proof of this and needs to show proof of receipts, absolutely everything to prove that this is how much it did cost um, to ensure that it is contractually okay uh, and acceptable and obviously the credits are made or, or, or vice versa. Okay, so we've got builder's obligations, builder's warranties. All right, so this is a good one. So... Another one that's not very common that um, uh, that small builders I think would come well, that would do often is um, clearly defining their progress payments. Now, contractually, what you are, what the builder is required to do is they need to um, put in writing the progress payment, um, 
which method it's from, what stage it is. On top of that, they also need to include a variations schedule. So any variations that have occurred throughout the project up to that stage. Um, because at that stage, anything done prior uh, that is a variation and it is completed will then fall into that, um, that invoice for that progress payment. Okay, So they add up the stage payment, maybe it's frame stage, and they've got a couple of variations. That totals, that is the total sum. After that, you also want to have a schedule of payments already made, uh, and that will also include the variations that have been paid as well. It needs to be very clear what's been paid, what hasn't been paid, so everyone's on the same page. The biggest thing that's going to destroy construction projects is not meeting expectations. So if you can keep that uh, communication channel very open, uh, well, it's going to make your life so much easier with the builder. Um, and even as a builder for the client, like having that clear communication is the best thing you can possibly have. As we come down a bit further, this is a good one. Builder to keep the land in neat and tidy condition. I drive around so many construction projects and they are absolute trash. They are an embarrassment and safety risk. It's ridiculous. So as per in this standard contract from the uh, Master Builders Association, the builder will take reasonable steps to keep the existing building and the land where the works are being carried out in a reasonably neat and tidy condition during the carrying out of the works. So if you're cracking the sads about your builder leaving shit everywhere, while well, one, it's a safety issue, two, it's in the contract to keep it tidy so they can be respectful of you know the ones that own the land. Um, so we've got the owner's obligations. Now, one thing people may not understand or know or may think it's a bit of a, an overreach, but the builder uh, actually has the has the right to request proof of capacity to pay. Now, in most situations, most projects are, are bank funded. So pretty much once the bank approves it, you can say from a builder's perspective that they can have the capacity to fund it. If not, and it's cash funded, well, it's not an overreach for the builder to ask for proof that that money is going to be available for the construction projects so they know they can be paid out. So if you feel your builder's you know, pushing a little bit too hard with regards to capacity to pay, be mindful that it is actually okay and he can do that if he wishes. Now, what you're going to find at the start of the project is a deposit payable. Now, any job under $20,000, you can ask for a 10% deposit if you wish. Any job over 20 grand, which is most decent jobs, 5% deposit is the only amount you can ask for. Nothing more than that, that's the number. So if they're trying to squeeze for more out of you, um, just tell them where to go. So we come down to here to the owner's obligation not to interfere. Now, this one is very critical because if you as an owner continue to interfere with the project, this can be a breach or this is a breach of the contract and actually can you know, cause you delays and cause you issues. Now, what this actually indicates is that the owner should be only talking to the builder, all right? Not the builders, laborers, not the builders, subcontractors, not the builders, suppliers, any other consultants associated with the builder. The client talks to the builder only. The reason for this, and this is very common because it does happen a, a fair bit, is you lose the track of communication. Let's say you're doing a $1 million renovation project and there's just a lot of variable in the house. You know, it's not a brand new build. There's just new things getting done here and changed here and the, and the client keeps walking through and says, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. And they're not going through the correct channels. What can happen here is you might have a, a, an owner that's gone in on a Saturday, walk through the job, which he really, they really shouldn't be. But if they did and they're having a chinwag with the, build, with the plumber and then all of a sudden, 
They've changed all the locations of plumbing. They've changed this and changing that, and they're changing the fixture, and there's no real conversation had with the builder. What can actually happen is that that can lead to costs, and the client may not understand that there's going to be a cost impl- cost due to those changes. So they're making these changes, then the builder comes in, doesn't know, even know that the changes occur. There's no communication. It's he said, she said. It's an absolute shit show, and it is not what you want. So there's nothing wrong with your client and yourself and the trades going out to site and discussing things on site. That's fine as long as it's minuted and captured because if you find yourself as a client um, interfering with a project and going in there and kicking and screaming and changing all the rules, uh, well, you are going to get your ass handed to you and sent off that job quick smart. So I would not recommend that one bit. Okay, now for the good stuff, we've got the variations by the owner. Now, all builders hate variations. If a builder says they like variations, they are full of shit or they have no money in the job and they're trying to squeeze something out of you. But in most circumstances, uh, we don't like them. They're time consuming and it involves paperwork and we just want to build stuff. That's who we are. Now, variations by the owner. So the builder is not obliged to perform the variations if they don't want to. So you can request a variation in writing. The builder doesn't have to agree to that variation. Now, there are some prerequisites here to understand, and that is uh, there's a few things. So the owner can request a variation, and they say they want to change the door types, right? They can say, I want to change the door types from type A to type B, if it doesn't change the permit, if it doesn't change the contract to increase it by 2% or more, um, and it's not going to cause any delays in the project, well, what can happen is the builder can just say, all right, it's going to be a cost neutral sum or it's going to be it's going to cost an extra over of whatever it is and it's agreed upon, proceed, job done. Now, it can also go the other way. If it is a substantial change that it's going to change the building permit, it's going to change the cost of the contract to greater than 2% or it's actually going to cause delays on the project itself. This needs to be clear now in writing from the builder as to how many days expected it's going to be delayed because this will be put onto the back of the contract as an extension of time. They need to know the costs associated with it and then they can even take a deposit on those costs. So say it's a 100 grand variation, they can take a, they can take a deposit of 20% on that before starting the, the variation change. But that has to be signed and agreed upon from both parties before proceeding, okay? Very critical. Variations need to be absolutely black and white as to why it has occurred, how it's occurred, and what's going to proceed moving forward and how the completion of the job is going to look like. Most disputes you you would come across during um, construction projects is during these variation disputes and complaints it's you know yeah it's oh you allowed this or had this on the drawing and why am i getting a variation for this you know i think most of the time it comes down to poor contractual um setting up the project something like this not being super clear on the plans as to what you're executing what what you're not Um, i'm going to show you actually towards the back end of this a, a tender qualification document that we put in place to help mitigate this issue and i recommend Every builder does it, and I recommend every client gets their builder to do it. Um, you do notice it on the big builders, like they have every tiny detail of exactly what they're implementing and also what they're not implementing. So it's very clear that a variation has been executed. Um, it's just not as common with especially smaller builders that don't have the 
resources and capacity to sort of knock out a, a beautiful looking contract. Okay, so now we're looking at variations by the builder. So again, it needs to be signed and agreed upon by both parties for all variations. Uh, even if they're small and it's a zero sum change, I will be getting it assigned and approved by the client to ensure that everyone is hunky-dory and are on the same path. Variations by the builder is very similar to the client. Okay, so we've got a good one in here, um, which I haven't come across uh, for a while, to be honest, which is the builder's entitlement to extra amounts for excavation and footings. Now, this is a very, very common variation you're going to get in most construction projects, and that's in-ground works. And the reason being is because it's in-ground. And you don't know to the extent what you're going to be doing. And it's a best guessed game. And what it says here is pretty well similar to that. It says the builder will be entitled to a claim of money not already provided for in the original contract price if the need for the additional amount could not reasonably have been ascertained from the foundation's data. So what that means is based on the soil report, based on the engineering drawings, okay, anything that is outside of what you would assume is there, uh, and it's an extra over is going to be a, a legitimate variation. So you might have on the drawings that the founding depth is going to be 1.5 meters for the bottom of the footings. The assumption is we're digging 1.5 meters down. That's it. Okay. What you can find is you might have soft spots or you might hit rock or you might have other unforeseen issues. There might even be a pit in the middle of where you're going to be digging. Okay, what that's going to do is going to change the whole scope of the, of the footings. You might have to dig deeper. It means there's going to be spoil removal. You're going to have to have blinding concrete, which is just pretty much refilling the concrete back up to the base level. It's like 1.5. So it's concrete, steel, concrete again. Um, this is very common. All right. So the, the one thing I do, I do sort of find is that a lot of builders don't really price in any allowance for extra over. Like there should always be a provisional sum in the contracts for soil removal or spoil removal or anything like to do with that sort of thing because um, it needs to be very clear that if we hit this, this is what's going to occur, all right? If we need to go deeper with the, with the blinding, uh, with, with the footings, it's going to cost you 350 a cubic metre for blinding concrete. That's it. The subcontractor claims it, you pay them, you claim it from the client, we're just in the middle, you know, it doesn't change anything for us, all right? Um, yeah, interesting one, that. I liked it. Okay, so one of the other very important uh, aspects of a building contract is the extensions of time claim, EOTs, delays, all right? Now, at the start of the project, um, the builder should have written you a commencement letter and said the date is going to finish on the, like most construction projects, on Christmas Day, all right? 25th of December is the completion date. Any delay during the construction project, now that's going to include things like um, any variations that cause delay. Maybe you can't get onto specific materials, which is delaying the project. Inclement, inclement weather, rain, maybe it's bushfires, I don't know. Could be a client dispute, industrial action. Just things outside the builder's capacity to control, okay? The builder can't control it. It's just is what it is. So there's a legitimate claim to be put forward. Now, the thing that needs to happen though is you need to apply for that claim. You need you need to claim the days. So if you see a delay coming up, say materials, and it's going to be, all right, we've got a six-month lead time. This, this would have been a big COVID thing. We've got a six-month lead time on getting this specific material because 
you know, the whole world wants to shut down, right? Now, it's just a written notice. There's going to be a 10-week delay uh, because I can't get the materials in a reasonable time, all right? And you need to prove it. So you need to say that normally it's four weeks. Now it's 12 weeks, okay? So we had to do that on a couple of our projects during COVID, and it was agreed upon by the client because there was really there was no alternative product we could use. It just, it just had to happen, which was unfortunate, okay? Now, what this does is you need to... Um, uh, you put it in writing to the client to say that we've had 10 days of rain over the last month. We're going to put 10 days of an extension of time in, which will push that completion project from the 25th of December back to early January. Okay. Now, if the client doesn't respond within 14 days, it's assumed that they've accepted it and then the contract is pushed back. If you would like to reject that claim and you think they're full of shit, well, you need for, to do it in 14 days and respond to the builder, okay? And then you need to negotiate, in reality, what those actual delays are going to be, okay? Now, some builders will take the piss on a couple of variations in regards to trying to push out the contract as far as they can. So they might there might be some job that's, they might put two weeks delay to do some small scope. I think you could push back on that and say it is definitely unfair and unreasonable. Um, and yeah. The idea about a contract is that it's fair and reasonable and it's written in here that it has to be fair and reasonable um, amount of delays. Okay, so now we're getting into like suspending the contract, terminating the works. Now, this is from a builder's perspective, okay? So from, from the builder's perspective, they can also terminate the contract um, as much right as the client has to, okay? Things to, things to consider from a builder's perspective is that if the client cannot pay for the job, they could terminate the job. Late payments on the job, they can start, they can suspend the project until the payment's made and then they can continue the project. That suspension will be an extension of time and all those sorts of things. Um, uh, failure to provide information for the job, PC, PS items. Now, this is a very common thing that happens very often and that is delays with the construction project because the client can't make a decision as to what they're going to do. They've been handheld the whole process and there's only a couple of items they need to get an answer on and as a builder you just want to get the job done you need the answer it's not you don't care how the building looks because everybody's tastes are different so you can't make that determination um, or that judgment call for them so you send off an email tell me what door you want you can even give them some samples to work with if they don't get back to you within a certain period of time um, this interferes the job slows it down, okay? So you can suspend the job based on this until they answer X, Y, and Z, then I will continue the job, all right? And then you can put delays in as well. Um, it's not very common that, you know, you're going to get that far into the project and suspend it, but that pressure of actually putting it back onto the client to do all the hard yards and actually get some answers of what they want is so critical. It is, I would say, one of the most critical parts of construction. Building is easy. Making a decision is the hardest part. Another one is they uh, take possession without prior written consent prior to the final payment. So if the client just comes and rolls in and takes ownership of the house, well, it's going to suspend the suspend, suspend the contract there. They can hinder carrying out the works. Um, now, the owner has 14 days to respond to the termination notice. Okay, so they might be no payment, whatever it is, but as long as that's sort of the first step in trying to bring everyone together and continue this project, continuing the contract, resolve any issues, and then move forward. Now, one of the most important aspects of the contract is the completion of the contract. So what is happening at the back end of the construction 
uh, project. Now, you build the job, you get all the way to the end. The builder needs to provide you with a written notice to say that the job is complete and it's time for a final inspection. Okay, so you'll get a written notice to say, job's done, we reckon it's done. We're happy with it. We want you to come through the job, do a final inspection. If there's any defects or anything associated with the job or if you think the job isn't complete, that is noted down during that process and is actioned accordingly. Now, if the client doesn't or can't make it or doesn't make it to that final inspection, it is assumed that they are happy with the project, the project is complete, they make their final payment. If the client goes to the inspection and they uh, put a hit list of defects together, there might be some painting issues or it could be anything. As long as it's related to the project uh, and they're fair and reasonable and they're actually genuine defects, that big list of items, uh, the builder has 21 days to execute. Once those items are completed, then the client will make their final payment. There's no final payment and then the builder's going to come and fix all the shit. They fix everything, then you pay them. The number one thing I always tell mates getting houses built or projects or whatever, if you're getting to the end of the job and you are not happy or if something's not right, do not pay. Do not pay until you have been, your expectations are met or they've rectified any issues that you know, are present. Reason being is if you make that final payment, they are taking they are making the assumption that that job is complete and they've accepted all defects associated with the project and it's hard to get money back that you've already paid. Okay, so be very mindful of that. Um, you can get bad actors or bad clients that just take the piss and hold the money and, and are assholes about it with good builders, but then you can also get shitty builders that have good clients who they're trying to, you know, throw the wool over the eyes and just, you know, drag them through a property that's barely complete. Another thing that's very common you'll get, especially with these new, uh, like these big builders, is they'll write to say that the property is complete. They've got the certificate of occupancy, um, which technically you can get the completion of the project without the walls being painted. So the client walks into the house and half the walls are painted, everything's installed. You can technically live in the house, um, but it's not complete. It's nowhere near complete. So things like that is a pain in the ass as well because you can't defect a property that is incomplete. It's called incomplete works. It's not a defect. Um, so it's something to be very mindful of. Okay, so now we're getting to liquidated damages. LDs uh, is a sum of money agreed upon within the contract that is paid weekly to the client if the builder goes over the contract period. So if we're talking about that example and we get to Christmas Day on the 25th and there's been no delays and the builder's still on site, still chipping away and trying to finish that project, they will be liable for whatever agreed amount it is um, within the contract, which we'll go through later on, per week as liquidated damages. That is to cover the client for any rents or any sort of you know, charges that's going to cost them for not getting into that home when the builder said they would. Now, the next one as well is the defects liability period. Again, this is a period of time that is agreed upon between the client and the um, and the builder where the client can write up a list of defects and bits and pieces that they've come across during this, process, during this period of time and the builder is um, obliged to rectify them if they are legitimate defects. If the owners come and damage the wall when they moved in, that's not the builder's defect. 
okay? It might be things like doors sticking or doors not working or a tap's a bit loose. Just odds and sods like that, okay? Okay, as we scroll down a bit further in the contract, we've got the owner's rights to terminate the contract. Now, this is very similar to the builder's perspective, uh, vice versa. The main things that would come up in this this uh, process would be uh, the builder just unreasonably suspends the works. They're just pushing back on useless shit and they're making up all these reasons not to do the job is a fair enough reason to um, exit the contract. The other one is um, unable or unwilling to complete the works. So maybe they've gone to liquidation. That's an obvious one. Maybe they just don't have the capacity and they're struggling to do it um, and is in substantial breach of the contract. So there's obviously lots of things in the contract that they can be in breach of if you accumulate that accordingly. Um, if you, The next step you would have to do is you, prevent, you, you present that to the builder in writing, okay? Um, and it needs to be with a registered post as well, all right? So it's registered post in writing to the builder, notifying them of the breaches that have undertaken or breach has been undertaken and that they wish to terminate the contract. The uh, builder has 14 days to respond. Um, either rectify any of the breaches that they've been put in place, clear up the mess, whatever that may be, work with the client, vice versa, so they can get through this process and finish the construction job. Now, there's also some other reasons to terminate the contract. Um, things like the contract price exceeding 15% increase, which is ridiculous. Uh, not completing the job within one and a half times the period it was to have be completed. And there's no valid reasoning. So if it's taking one and a half times longer to do the project and there's no excuse, there's been no delays put forth, sacking is absolutely useless. Now, an important part of the uh, contract is also the, the dispute resolution. Now, this is a contract from a Victoria. In Victoria, we have the DB, DBDRV. Um, it's a step before VCAT. Uh, so this, you know, obviously the, um, uh, the Civil Administrative Tribunal here in Victoria. Now, most states have a, a VCAT equivalent or a QCAT or an, or a, um, uh, an NCAT. Before that, most uh, most states have a, a dispute resolution process for the construction industry, okay? So wherever you are locally, um, you just need to look for that. Here in Victoria, it's a DBDRV. Um, it's an online process. You just start, start, the, start the process. If it escalates from that, then it goes to VCAT and it just continues up the chain, okay? So as we come through the contract, this is where we're getting to the section of the contract now, which is specific for this job. Everything prior to that is just standard terms and conditions, which is very common. Um, and there's no real change you can have with them or whatsoever. Here, moving forward, these are the specific details of the contract, of this specific contract. And we're just going to discuss a couple of things about these individual sections, things that... Um, I use it for things that the client need to be aware of, right? So the first section up here is section B. This is the special conditions. Now, if you're a if you're a client and you're worried about your builder doing some dodgy shit, they're going to do it in the special conditions. They're going to have ridiculous clauses in there that I don't know. I've read some before that say you have a private building inspector that is coming out to site to check on the workmanship of that builder. I've seen in here that any defect that's come up by that building inspector is to be at the cost of the client. Dumb shit like that. This here I've got um, special conditions one is a detailed qualification document supersedes the contract drawings. This document is a clear outline of the scope entered into and the items included and excluded from construction. So what I've said here in this special conditions is that there is a document which is in the appendix which we'll go through that supersedes all the other documentation. 
if it says it's in this this document, that's what goes. If on the drawing there's something else, it's what this document is. This is what supersedes it. Okay, so there is a hierarchy of documentation that you need to be aware of. Be mindful that you want to be very clear as to what that hierarchy is. Usually, it's the um, such things as the architectural drawings, engineering drawings, and so on and so forth. It goes through the goes through the ranks. Um, but then from that, you've got specifications. There's a whole there's a whole pile of shit which I, we can discuss another time. Um, but yeah, in the contract, you've got special conditions. So anything you're worried about, or if you got a contract, go straight to the special conditions. This is going to be this is the area, the grey area where they're going to try bend reality and um, shaft you if they wish. Now, the next is just the basic. Uh, basic details of the contract. You've got the owner, the builder, the warranty insurance. You've got the land. Now the land, like you need to know proof of they own the land. Um, it's the folio. It's the whole title documentation. Uh, next, we're looking at the description. Uh, so this one in particular, is just extension to the front living area, including the complete renovation of an in, of the all internal areas. So pretty much, we had a house on stumps. We removed the roof. We removed every internal wall. The only thing we kept was the subfloor frame and the external walls, and that's it. We did a little extension, and then we rebuilt the whole thing, new roof, all that sort of stuff. It was pretty sexy. Um, specifications. So, again, you, this is included in the contract. It talks about the specifications, the fixtures and finishes schedule, the detail, things like that. Um, you got the plans. you got the um, details of, of the documentation, so who the architects were, the engineers, um, all those types of things. Uh, this go continues down. <clears throat> now, this is where we talk about the construction period. So, this is a standard table that we fill out in the contract. So, this says here that there is going to be 48 days, 48 Saturday and Sundays. We've got, so in total, two public holidays as well. So, we've got 50 days we're not working. Um, so, the allowed actual construction period is 120 days. All right. So the total construction period, including delays, is going to be 170 days. All right. So there's other things in here. You can have like RDOs, builders' holidays, all this sort of stuff. You can add into the um, into your you know, delayed period. Now this is critical because this is the number that you're working from from your commencement date, and then pushing it out. Okay. Um, the next one, you know, this is probably pretty important. This is the contract price, um, the deposit both including GST because we're talking in terms of the client. Now, there's other things as well which we have in contracts, which is like services and facilities. So the owner might not be paying for it and we might have to be paying for it as a builder. So we can have like fees inside the contract about using gas and sewer and telephones and that sort of stuff. In most situations with domestic construction, none of these are going to be included and it's going to be the cost of the owner. But you also need to put a bit of a note in there about how much approximately that will cost them as well. Um, that also goes for exclude, um, obviously any excluded fees, but also goes with regards to um, the permit process. So who's paying for the building permit? Who's paying for the planning permit? An approximate cost of what that's going to be. Um, and that's all up here through, you know, it's just a tick box, tick and flick thing. Now, the next one is the period for payment of the progress claims. So we've got here seven days. If nothing is stated, it's seven days. Builder puts the invoice in, you got seven days. Unless there's a dispute, you got seven days. Pay the bill. The other one is the period for payment of the final claim. Again, seven days after 
completion. Once all those defects are completed, you've got seven days to pay the bill, okay? It's not when you've got the final certificate or certificate of occupancy or anything like that. It's not when you can live in it. It's once all the defects are finished, then you've got seven days to pay the invoice. Defects liability period, um, I've got 60 days in here. That's for, yeah, so two months of any bits and pieces that come up. If nothing stated, no period. That's, a bit, that's, that's ridiculous. I think it should, yeah, it could put something in there. Um, annual interest rate applicable, I, I think I just threw 5%. I, it's, it's for late payments. It's, it's just a number that's got to be put in there. Public liability, 10 million, common. Rate of LDs, um, 250 bucks a week, and then vice versa. So if there's delays from the owner's perspective, they like, the builder can claim for LDs as well. 250 bucks a week. Whew. It's going to get you nothing. Um, fixtures and fittings not included in the contract price, but shown on the plans and or specifications. So you might have some things that are in the documentation, uh, but you've not, haven't been included in the price. So you need to exclude all those items. Now this is where that detailed tender qualification document, which I've superseded here works an absolute treat. Um, it's because it's, you can go much clearer here. It's just messy with the, with this whole process, trying to add it and take it out. Uh, materials to be supplied by or items of work to be carried out by the owner. So in this situation, we had three items. We had the painting scope, we had the floating timber floor scope, and we had the carpet scope. So as the builder, there was no costs or anything associated with the painting scope, any of these items. It was all on the t all on the client to, um, to implement an action. We've also got secondhand materials to be supplied by the builder. Um, there might be something you might come across. Here we've got our prime cost allowances. Now, as we discussed before, we spoke about what those could be. Here we've got door furniture. We've got 600 bucks for that. Tile supply, so just the supply of the tiles. We've got plumbing fixtures, freestanding bath. Okay, so these are values put in place for... We, we, there was a brief scope of what those fixtures would look like, but it wasn't really locked in yet. So we just put a sum in here. And then again, any excess, you've got the builder's margin, which is... Um, 15%, which is a minimum of 15%. It's, it's high for some builders. Uh, provisional sums, again, it's the same idea, but it's got a labor component, all right? Here they have an example of landscaping, trees times 10, and the allowance, all right? So again, this could be drainage, it could be anything like that. We had nothing on this project. The interesting section is the progress payment table. Now, with a major construction project, you have two methods. You have method A and method B. Method A is you can choose one of the following. Um, it's more or less stage payments, okay? So you'll have your deposit, your base, frame, lockup, final, or lockup, fix, final, okay? So as you can see here, there's specific contract uh, percentages put in place against these stages, which is you, you can't, can't mess with, all right? Uh, the deposit's always going to be 5%, and then you add in everything else um, associated with it. So for example, the main one is this last one, all right? So you get the contract to build through all stages. You'd have your deposit, your base stage, 10%, frame stage, 15%, lockup stage, 35%, fixing stage, 25%, and then your final payment, which is upon completion, all right? That all totals 100%. You can't mess with these ones, 5% at the top and whatever is at the bottom to complete it, that's it. Now, what you're going to find, and I think most builders would be doing this, is going to use uh, method B, which is a progress payments, okay? 
So we use progress payments here. And the reason why we use progress payments is there wasn't any clear, um, we couldn't have done it in this situation back here. Okay, we can't do the base stage because we were doing demo and there was a structure already there, all right? If the base stage was the three stumps we had to do for the extension, um, we're gonna get, what, $40,000 for the first stage and it's gonna take us two days. So we have to break it up where it's more methodical, okay? With a new build, super easy. No drama at all. You just proceed with this, that's it, okay? Method B, so what we had here, we had uh, deposit. So upon signing the contract, there was a 5% deposit. We had progress payment one, which was the completion of the demo. Payment two was the frame inspection. Payment three was completion of plaster. And then the final payment was upon final inspection. Okay, so we just broke it up to sort of, to break up the job in a way that we can just have, you can, and you can have as many stages as you want. As long as it's clearly defined at what point that triggers that payment, uh, that's all you got to do. And it was very clear what we did here, okay? I think in this project in particular, it was bank funded. So we actually had to change this back to um, method, this method A, and we just fucked up my cash flow. But anyway, that's fine. Um, obviously, there's a total cost. Everyone agrees upon it. Sign it. Happy days. Now, to be, mi to be mindful that the uh, method B isn't common. So they actually have added in here to go against the Building and Construction Act as that they need to be, everyone needs to agree that these progress payments are fair and reasonable. Um, and and the reason why they're put in place is they can't, you can't actually do those stage payments, okay? So this, yeah, everyone signs this to ensure that's all um, adequate. As well as that in the contract, you also have to give um, the client the domestic building contracts checklist. So they go through this checklist, which I might do on another episode. And then what we find after this is all the documentation associated with the contract. So what we're looking at here is the soil report for the project. Now that gives all the details um, of what's included in the contract and how the build is to proceed. We've got the thermal, thermal assessment, so the energy report. Now, so some of the things that are just some of the things required to form a building permit, which I, will, I might discuss in another episode, is um, is these specific items. Okay, so you need the uh, building contract, which is obviously given. You need the architectural plans, the engineers' plans and computations, the soil report, the energy report or thermal assessment. You might need a bell rating, which bushfire attack level rating. Um, and the domestic builders insurance. Most of the time, that is the basic, no, that's the basic documentation needed to put together a building permit for a domestic building contract to proceed with it, okay? Okay, so that is what you're looking at when you go for a major domestic building contract. I hope this gave some clarity to anyone in the situation at the moment. If you have any questions, please ask Happy to help out where I can or give further details on specific areas, which I think I will do throughout this process. Um, hope you enjoyed this episode of The Shed. Thank you for listening in and we will see you on the next one. Catch up. <laughs>
you've been, your expectations are met or they've rectified any issues that you know, are present. I drive around so many construction projects and they are absolute trash. They are an embarrassment and safety risk to help mitigate this issue. And I recommend every builder does it and I recommend every client gets their builder to do it. All builders hate variations. If a builder says they like variations, they are full of shit or a 